Hey, theater people, Patrick here. Did you forget what I sounded like? Thank you all so much for your tweets, DMs, and emails telling us that you miss us. As most of you know, producer Mike and I have both been super busy with other projects. Me with True Crime Obsessed, my so-called podcast, and the upcoming season three of Broadway Backstory. And Mike, with his new podcast, We Couldn't Help But Wonder, which is an episode-by-episode journey through Sex in the City, and you should all be listening to it. You can find any of those podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. You guys, we had been making theater people nonstop for just about five years, and it was time for a break. And we want to let you know that in the future, we're going to be making this podcast a little bit differently. That is to say, we're moving to a seasonal schedule. So we're going to bring you four episodes in a row over the next four weeks to wrap up our very long five-year, 150-ish episode season one. And then the plan is to come back in the fall with eight to ten episodes covering the fall season on Broadway. And then come back again in the spring with eight to ten or maybe more episodes covering the spring season on Broadway and the Tony Awards. We love you all. Thank you so much for understanding that sometimes things need to change. And now let's get to today's episode. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. You guys, today I'm super excited to welcome my friend, the theater historian, author, producer, and Feinstein's 54 Below programming director, Miss Jennifer Ashley Tepper, to the podcast. As many of you know, Jen is a force of nature. She's all positive energy, she's a beacon of knowledge, and she's the embodiment of a theater kid living out their dreams on Broadway. Jen is currently producing Joe Iconis's Be More Chill off-Broadway at New York City's Signature Theater, and she's also directing this fall's The Jonathan Larson Project at Feinstein's 54 Below. We talk a ton about that in this episode, and you can find tickets at 54below.com. Okay, here we go. And uh, we're good to go. Hi, Jen Tepper. Hi, Patrick. We're sitting on the floor in your office. Does everyone who says your name want to pronounce it American Psycho style? Okay. I don't know if you listen to this podcast. Yes. Do you? <laughs> I, I have, if I could, I could talk about the interview that I did with Helena York for, I found her like when I saw, um, what was the Woody Allen one that she did? Uh, Bullets Over Broadway. So like I became, I became obsessed with her when mm-hmm. I saw that. And then I saw American Psycho, which I am, I think I saw it like four times in wow. the two weeks that it was open i was obsessed with it she was so good in grand hotel i saw it the other night yeah i know she's great it's really amazing it's a great production so she i i tracked her down like i spent forever trying to just get a contact for her Uh super fancy laura benanti put us in touch and helena york emailed me she's like laura says i have to do something for you and i was like oh just lose your mind she's so she comes to do the interview and she's like i swear to god i thought i was convinced you just wanted me to do this so i would say your name and i was like will you say it this is just gonna be a podcast where you and i talk about helena york this yes is patrick and I know. <laughs> i am obsessed with her i was like floating three inches off my chair the whole time i was i couldn't believe she's so talented how like normal she was too mm-hmm. i was like you're not even like a diva you're not even demanding anything this is not what I expected at all. Yes, because she's such a good actor that like you expect some of that character. She did a really good uh, Feinstein's Fifty Four Below show as well. But she did, she did a, a while ago. But Grand Hotel was just amazing. yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, hi girl, hi, what up? We have so much to talk about. Let's talk. So you've been on my other podcast, so I'm gonna ask you questions I've already asked you. Great, but it's a whole different audience. Beautiful. So. You are like, you are the go-to theater knowledge, but you also have this like fabulous theatery life where you have like (laughs) super fancy friends, you have a super fancy office. (laughs) I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about like 
what got when you were growing up like how you sort of found theater and what your like theater life was like when you were a kid totally i was always so obsessed with theater from the first show i saw are we recording? Oh, yeah, are we, we are. Good? Perfect. I'm always terrified that I'm going to like look so am I. two minutes in and be like, we're not recording. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing when I'm doing interviews. Um, I was always so obsessed with theater from the first show that I saw. And my mom sent me to theater camp when I was nine. And I played Drake the butler and Annie. Yes. Um, it was a very prime role for a nine-year-old, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, and I was just totally hooked. I got to see touring productions in Florida. I became obsessed with collecting cast recordings and reading liner notes and reading books. And um, you know, every Hanukkah, I would get eight cast recordings. Yeah. So I became obsessed with theater in a way that I loved performing as part of high school and summer camp, but I never really was like, I'm going to be a professional performer. I always was like, I am obsessed with the history of theater. I love the idea of producing. I love the idea of being part of the creation of new musicals. I love underappreciated shows and like the way that those are sometimes brought back to life. And so I just kind of combined all of those different loves that I grew up with um, as I was kind of making my way in the professional world in New York. So when you were a kid, like, were you like a, a kid that was like always into history and then you found theater and you like went down a rabbit hole of theater history? No, it was definitely theater specific like truly from the first moment that I was like oh I'm an Annie what's that I was like what who's Charles Strauss what else did he write and I got taken to chorus line and I was like who are these people like what one of them talks about King and I can I get the King and I recording it literally was like every show was a gateway drug to other shows and um you know again like liner notes were such a big thing for me like with hard copy CDs I would just be like let me read all the lyrics and like learn about all the things they're talking about it it almost is like regular history came to me through musicals as it does for a lot of us we were like let me learn more about all these characters characters and assassins from you know the musical but um yeah no I always was so obsessed with just teaching myself about shows and were you was like when I was in high school the internet was just barely a thing you're mm-hmm. a lot younger than me did you have access to like all of that stuff I had a certain amount of internet access for sure and you know I did things like before I had ever visited New York I ordered Playbill magazine which you could do back then and which it would just, I just like... found out was a thing like literally a month ago I did not <laughs> even know that that existed yeah it did and I also weirdly ordered like Time Out New York and I truly would read like the both magazines which you know Playbill magazine has all that content all the interviews yeah. all the information even if you know you're not actually seeing a show so I would read those from afar in Florida and I would like cut out pictures of like Ross Bars and Amy Spanger and Jerry Dixon and TikTok Boom <laughs> even though yes. I had never seen it and like tape it on my wall. Um, and then, you know, Florida is really lucky in that it has all those snowbirds. It has like that elderly population that really nurtures the theater. So a lot of good regional theaters, a lot of good touring oh, houses. Right. And every time I saw like, you know, a regional production of crazy for you with like local actors, I'd be like, okay, now let me Google crazy for you. And the internet was certainly not at all what it is now, but, um, but I was able to get a certain amount of like, Oh, this is what crazy for you was from the internet back then. And so when you, I, you went to NYU, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. What was your, did you make your own major or did you go into a major there? I went to Tisch for dramatic writing and I always say it's because I loved theater and I loved writing so um, I was like oh you know this is a good place for me I know I don't want to be a performance major Um, what I wanted to do was so weirdly specific but I was lucky enough to kind of craft my own education in certain ways where like it's a cliche but like New York City became my campus and I would go to shows and I would like take notes during previews about what was changing and I would um, yeah like I would volunteer for different benefits and I would um, put together shows myself at NYU and um, in dramatic writing you know everyone wanted to be a playwright or a screenwriter or a TV writer and I was like I want to be a theater historian and make musicals and they were like that's weird but cool so for my thesis um, I you know I'm such a theater girl I'm not really a movie girl like I respect and love movies but I'm not you know it's not my expertise Um, but but I actually became a screenwriting concentrate because for my thesis in college, I adapted the book Everything Was Possible, The Birth of the Musical Follies by Ted Chapin into a screenplay. Oh, my God. 
because I was like, it's kind of like creating a theater documentary, right? Because you're combining this book that's what really happened during the original production of Follies with this idea of dramatizing it. Um, and it was like, I was like, what am I going to get the most out of doing as a thesis within this dramatic writing program? So throughout like NYU, I did a lot of things like that to kind of craft my own world and teach myself what I wanted to learn. And I also was like constantly like reading books and, and you know, just like kind of teaching myself in that way. Wow. And so when... So the, the untold stories of Broadway, yes. those are your books. Where did those fall in like your, did you start working here first? Did you, like, where did those come? The untold stories of Broadway kind of came about because I became more and more obsessed with the theaters themselves as I started, you know, being around them in New York. Um, oh, right. Maybe tell people what they are. If they yeah. Don't know. Yeah. So the books are, there's three volumes so far. There's going to be six total by the time I'm done. And each book takes eight different Broadway theaters and it takes readers through the stories of those theaters um, by sharing um, people's personal stories who I've interviewed. So I've interviewed about 250 theater professionals from actors to producers, to directors, to stagehands, to musicians, to company managers. And um, it is just like all of their personal stories but based around each theater so you know if you're reading about the St. James you're reading about that original production from Oklahoma from someone right. I interviewed and then you're reading about you know something rotten which just happened there and everything in between all connected through the space um, and in the book there's also discoveries I've made about the theaters and I give you fun facts and histories about each of the shows um, so it's it's really like a theater by theater you know wow. history uh, and they've been so amazing and fun to write but I became obsessed with the theaters themselves when I was working on the musical title of show at the Lyceum and I spent a ton of time exploring Lyceum, which is the coolest theater. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, someday I'm going to write a book where I talk about the theaters themselves. And a couple years later, uh, I met these women who were doing this publishing company. They're both producers in their own right. And uh, they came to see this concert that I do called If It Only Even Runs a Minute, uh, which celebrates underappreciated musicals. And they were like, do you want to pitch us a book? Like, this seems really cool. Um, but instead of pitching them a book about underappreciated musicals, which I also love, I was like, you know, I have this idea for a theater by theater history of, of Broadway and uh, that's kind of how it happened and it came about and the crazy part was I used to work my full time job before I was here was I worked for the Broadway producer Ken Davenport and I got my book deal and started writing my first book at the exact same time as I got this job at 54 Below so I was like writing my first book switching jobs starting here as oh the program director and it's always like this is so weird and random but my number one theater regret of something I missed was two of my best friends appeared that summer in a production of they're playing our song, which is like one of those shows I've always wanted to see. And it was like my two really good friends, Lauren Marcus and Eric Lee Morris. And I missed it because I literally was like, oh my God, I'm sleeping two hours a night. I'm writing a book. <laughs> I'm like switching jobs. It was a really oh crazy year, God. but it, it was all very magical. And I'm, I'm really proud of the books. I want to get back to here in a second because we're going to talk about the Jonathan Larson project. Yay. But I want to like dive in on the books because I have so many questions. How So... First of all, can you explain a little bit more about your process? Like, you do you pick the theaters ahead of time? Like, how many theaters per book? And then, if you could talk a little bit about how you find the people with the stories. That's such a good question. Uh, in each book, there are eight theaters, and seven are currently operating Broadway houses, and one is a theater that's no longer in use or has been demolished, a lost Broadway theater. Um, so, in each book, I try to have a combination of theaters of different sizes, theaters that are like typically playhouses, and theaters that are typically musical houses. Um, I try to have theaters that have been, you know, Broadway. Broadway houses for a long time and theaters that are newer just so if you pick up any given book as a reader you're getting a variety of like what different Broadway houses are and yeah. you know the Minskoff has such a different history than the booth and like so right. that's something I kind of take into consideration and then um, with the first book I was like doing any interview I could with anyone I thought might have a really valuable story to tell and something interesting to share um, and who you know 
I wanted to get people that comprised a lot of different professions. So with the first book, that was really it. And it was, you know, my first time writing anything like that. So I, I learned a lot. And then as it's gone on, um, you know, I've developed a lot of other goals. Like I really always want to start each chapter as far back historically as possible. So yeah. it became a big goal to interview older people. And um, it always, you know, of course it always was, but more so. Um, and let, let's start this book in the 40s. Like how do I find anyone who's still with us who could talk to me about this theater in the 40s? Stuff like that. How and then, do you find um, those people? You know, just like a lot of research and yeah. um, chatting with other fellow theater nerds and and going, okay, I'm going to go through like every single person who was in this cast and and try to figure out if anyone has worked in the last five years or or stuff like that. Um, and it's been so amazing that people have led me to other people just right, through course. the interviews. Um, but I also have definitely had a goal of like, how do we feature topics that are going to be interesting to me and to readers of like, how do we discuss women, the history of women in the Broadway theater? How do we discuss people of color? Totally. Who are those people I can interview who might have an interesting perspective that's not usually represented um you know how do i find that first black musical director who right. works on broadway or something you know someone who has had an experience that's gonna like mark um history in some way like that so it that's been also part of it and it's also you know telling well-rounded stories so um you know having stories about shows that ran a short while and a long while like all of those things that you're just like how do i give people a variety of stories yeah how what can you give us some like you know, bullet points of some like super fascinating things you've learned. Totally. Um, I think just like some of the best things I've learned have had to do with, um, a a lot of what I love is, so many different things. Okay. So people who we know and love as superstars, their like early experiences have been really fascinating. Yeah. And um, I guess I haven't announced this yet, but I'll say it. So the next book has the Jacobs in it. And so oh, I've yeah. been um, doing a lot of work on Greece. And so, so many people that like Jerry Zachs was yeah. in that original Greece and Peter Gallagher was in that original. Wow. Greece, and, and, um, and you know, Randy Graff and, and Eileen Graff and all these people who we now know as these like Broadway um, stalwarts or legends. And, and they all are talking about these like, really early days in the theater. Um, and they're talking about like Greece had the longest running poker game on Broadway where in the basement, um, the stagehands would carry on because the majestic Jacobs and golden are connected. Oh, right. Stagehands like between cues could like run down to the Jacobs basement, play a hand of poker and run back. And like, they had these crazy stories about like performing in Greece. And then you'd look down in the pit and see that no one was there. And then one second before the song started, all the musicians would run in. And they had been like <laughs> playing poker to the last minute. So I just like those stories of like different times in Broadway history. Uh-huh. but um with people who we love today and like some of their you know they might not have told that before so things like that i really love um and i really have loved getting to talk to people that aren't interviewed that often so yeah. um you know ushers and you know stage doormen and women and just like people who um you know company managers house managers and talking to house managers has really like opened my eyes because they are like running that ship like yeah. they're the captain and um you know tim Petalina, who's the house manager at the uh richard rogers who was on in the heights and now he's on hamilton and like like his stories are incredible. He's been working for the Nederlander since he was a teenager. And um, just those things that like I, I he might have been interviewed before, but he's certainly not interviewed as often as like right. Peter Gallagher. Yeah. And then you you really get to hear those things from people that you don't often get to. So so there's so many favorite stories like that. What is it like to talk to somebody who was in Oklahoma? George S. Irving uh, was one of the two last surviving Oklahoma cast members, and I interviewed him a couple years ago, and he's actually since sadly passed away. Um, But he lived this long and prolific and amazing life in the theater, and 
in entertainment. And um, he had so many fascinating memories. And one of the craziest parts was that he was cast in Oklahoma because um, Oscar Hammerstein came to see a show at the Muni. Um, wow. That was a, a Hammerstein and Kern show, I believe. And he was in it. And um, and he was like, he picked him to be in Oklahoma. And he was very young at the time. And two weeks later, he got drafted into World War II. So um, it, it was just like this crazy thing of, can you imagine being in Oklahoma and getting drafted? Um, and stories like that, like the way that people's stories about the theater intersect with what was happening in the world at the time right, yeah, yeah. are just like fascinating. And it happens more often than we would think. And, you know, like... I, I have stories about like Zero Mostel being snuck out of a show because he um, was in trouble with the House of Un-American Activities. Like just the way history connects with Broadway um, and just with life um, that comes up a lot in a really cool way. What did you What did you think about um, Indecent? Because it's so up your alley. It's like a, it's like a play about a play about the history of a play. Like, did you see it? And what were your thoughts about it? I loved it so much. I loved Indecent. Um, and I definitely read up on God of Vengeance afterwards. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Indecent, um, similarly to like shuffle along, like I love the way that we can use theater to like tell stories about theater. Um, but in a way that's accessible to everybody and that intersects with like social and political things going on. Um, it was fascinating. And I, I was, one of the things I loved about that show was not only that it was a great show, it was like so fun was it was so accurate. I was just oh, like, yeah. they didn't take, um, you know, and, and I understand when shows take dramatic liberties with like making something historic more interesting, but I was like, these facts are all so correct. <laughs> Thank you. Indecent. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by research and I'm fascinated by you because you are so dedicated to research and I'm obsessed with that. And one of the things, just because we're Facebook friends, I've been able to follow your journey a little bit with is putting together this, the Larson project. Yeah. First of all, tell us what it is. And then we'll go back and sort of talk about how how you've put it together. The Jonathan Larson Project, which is happening at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below in October. Uh, I mean, I it's crazy, but I feel like the idea started in my brain a million years ago because I grew up so obsessed with Jonathan Larson and with Rent and Tick, Tick, Boom and with him. Um as many people know, my bat mitzvah sign and board is me popping out of a pl- pile of rent playbills dressed as Mimi. Um, so uh, it goes very far back and it goes very deep. And um, a couple years ago, Encores Off Center did Tick, Tick, Boom. And they do amazing these amazing, amazing, like yeah. an unbelievable production. I think I saw almost every performance, if not every performance. Oh. But um, they have this thing called the Lobby Project where I'm part of their artist board. And we created these events in the lobby that complemented the shows going on. So I had the opportunity to create this mini concert which was just like a super casual it had five songs and we sang some lesser heard lesser known songs of Jonathan Larson's in the lobby before Tick Tick Boom Um, and at that point I got to know like the family a little bit I got to know um, just like the Larson estate like those people they're so great Um, and they've done such a tremendous job at carrying on his legacy and I talked to them about the songs we were going to do what was going to happen um and from that point, I was like, I would love to expand this into a full evening. And um, Julie Larson, Jonathan's sister, was so amazing in that she connected me um, for my book to Jonathan Burkhart, who is one of Jonathan Larson's best, best friends. And I got to interview him when I did The Nederlander in Untold oh, Stories yeah. of Broadway. And his stories are phenomenal and moving. And like, I was just so amazed by all of that. So over the years since like Tick, Tick, Boom and Encores and since interviewing Jonathan and talking to Julie, um, the idea started to like more fully take root. And I started to like 
like do some research for it. And I was in DC um, visiting my friend Jason Williams and seeing him in Freaky Friday out of town. And I spent a day at the Library of Congress going through all the Jonathan Larson papers and the tapes. And the Library of Congress is I truly phenomenal. And there's so much material there. Like I was so amazed at the boxes and boxes of the collection and how well it's been put together and preserved and also the tapes. Like every demo and not, maybe not every because I wouldn't know if there were some missing, but like tons of demos, tons of bootlegs, tons of um, recordings of readings of his and like stuff he was working on are there. And I think that a lot of people forget that like, you know, we know Ren and if you're a theater fan, um, you know, or a smart person, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom as well. Um, but we forget that he was, he died when he was 35 and he had over 15 years of material. He had shows he wrote in college. He was developing uh, the musical 1984. He had the musical Superbia, which is depicted in Tick, Tick, Boom. And there's tons of other projects. There's um, standalone songs for concerts. There's songs he wrote for benefits. There's songs he wrote for TV. Um, and most of it we've never heard at all. So I spent time there and just was like amazed by the wealth of material and how great it was and spent the whole day like crying in the library. And then at that point, I was like, I really have to do this. And then I started talking more to the family and the estate about putting together this piece that would be, you know, what it turned into was a concert of his lesser known works that we don't know. Um, and kind of like the song cycle he never wrote, but that he would have of like, like some of these pieces, um, you know, not linking them together in any kind of real way, but kind of like the way songs from your world are closer than ever. There's like themes that run through it. There's certainly so many, like so many political songs and so many songs about New York and so many songs about being an artist and so many songs about, um, you know, a, a lot of the topics that are covered in Tick, Tick, Boom and Rent that we know, but different angles on them. So, um, yeah, I'm so excited for people to hear these songs and, um, the actors who we have and everyone involved with it. Yeah. I'm just like, are amazing. I have to, because I can't help myself. I have to ask you a whole bunch of questions. I'm going to ask you to guess because you're not going to know the answers. Or maybe you might know the answer to this. Can you put Jonathan Larson in context for today? Like, so when Jonathan Larson died, he died when his show was in like previews at the New York Theater Workshop. It was, it was, it was right before it started previews at New York Theater Workshop. So what is an, what are some artists today that are about the same level of success or notoriety that he was then? It's a great question. And what's so crazy about this is that because so musical theater at the time that he was around was dead in a way that it is not now. And I'm someone who there are so many shows from the eighties that flopped or that are weird or whatever that I actually love. So I'm not putting down shows from that time, but um, half of the theaters were empty and like Jonathan and his friends would like ride past Broadway theaters on their bikes and be like, half of these theaters are literally empty. That is so Um, crazy. How do we just like go in there and break in and like put on a show? Um, Did they do that? So Jonathan Burkhart, who I mentioned, who was Jonathan's best friend, they broke into the Nederlander one day. It's, <gasps> it's in my book. And um, they uh, like broke in. There was no one there. It had been abandoned. Like we forget this. Look on IBDB. You'll be fascinated. The Nederlander was truly like only filled for like 10 days between like 1990 and 96. Like when rent came in. Crazy. Um, so they they broke in and they like stood on stage. And Jonathan Larson used to do this thing where he would like loudly clap to get like an echo in a space. And they did that. And then um, after Jonathan died, when they were looking at theaters for rent, um, when they got to the Nederlander, um, you know, that was part of it. Well, I won't say it was like why they picked the theater, but Jonathan Burkhart speaks really beautifully about um, just like how the fact that he was there with Jonathan. They also saw uh, opening night of Raggedy Ann there randomly. Wow. Um, so this is all in my book. But, um, but, oh my God, I forgot what we were talking about. I could talk about Jonathan Larson. Oh, forever. I know. No, just like trying to put it in, oh, context, in context for like. Sure. So as we know from the song 3090, Jonathan was born in, born in 1960. And, um, 
all of the musical theater writers of his generation um, had just such huge trouble getting produced because like American musical theater writers writing new shows weren't getting produced then. And the people that Jonathan were his peers were like Paul Scott Goodman and Rusty McGee, the late, Rusty, Rusty, late great Rusty McGee um, and people like that, like who um, there was no, like there was nothing. And people who I might be like, Oh, they're kind of at Jonathan's point in their career. Like there isn't anything like that because there was no YouTube. There were no concerts. Right, there was no, right, right, right. there was nothing to get your work out there in the way that there is today. I mean, Jonathan certainly did cabaret, but there wasn't um, just that. And so to, to be, there's no one out there that could have that now because no one is 35 and has written as many musicals. And again, he like won the Richard Rogers development grant. Like he was certainly like getting accolades and there were people who recognized him, but it was so hard to get a new musical produced in that way that I, I mean, it's hard to figure that out, like someone to compare it to. And, um, Certainly, um, when Michael Friedman died and, you know, people were comparing them, uh, I had trouble with that because I was just like, it's so, I don't think you, it's almost not possible to compare one time with another or even one person because it's such different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know, like, one of the reasons I love you and I relate to you is because you and I are similar in this way, that, like, places where people that we love that aren't here anymore, like, we get sort of fascinated by them. Like, I remember reading a Facebook post of yours about how it took you forever to go see his apartment in the East Village. <laughs> Can you describe that experience? Yeah. Um, I couldn't believe that like you know 508 Greenwich Street is commemorated in the song in Tick Tick Boom and um I couldn't believe I was like why haven't I been there yet and I just kind of whispered to go and I actually felt the same way the Life Cafe was um you know gotten rid of after I had lived in New York for several several years and I somehow managed to not go there just one of those things and part of it for me is honestly that I'm like I love New York and I love these places and I don't want them all to be over so quickly like Uh I saved like a couple Broadway theaters for as long as I could just because I was like I don't want to know that there are none that I haven't been in for the first time yet Uh it's it's kind of a weird thing like that but I totally get it yeah the more and more I studied Jonathan's papers and like really like got to learn more about his work and his life I was like I have to go there and um you know, it's it's still a pretty abandoned part of town, but in his time, it was much more so. And just like being on that block and understanding where, you know, he lived there for so many years, so many things took place there, um, was really special and interesting. And somebody just randomly lives there. Um, Yeah, people people live there. And like they don't necessarily <laughs> even know the history. They don't. I think the, the landlord, I think, is still the same as it was. Um, So, you know, some people know, but, you know, that's New York and it's so yeah. crazy. Like sometimes I heard something, I don't know if it's true, about like the people who live in one of the apartments that George Gershwin lived in and like they didn't know or something. So New York is crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> watching a, MTV used to do a thing where they would take like big stars back to their first apartment and like one day Madonna knocked on like the door of her studio apartment in the East Village with Kurt Loder and the people inside wouldn't let them in. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh my God, that's amazing. What, okay, last, last rabbit hole question that yeah. we're just speculating about. But like what would have happened to Jonathan Larson had he lived? I think the weird thing is that um, Rent um, isn't finished. And I think, you know, that's very well documented. Like Michael Greif talks about it really smartly. And a lot of people do. Um, Jonathan passed away before it had its first real public performance at New York Theater Workshop. So it's um, it's unfinished in a way. And I do think it would have gone to Broadway. And I do think it would have been a giant success. But like who's to say how things would have played out differently if the show would have, I I mean, I know the show would have changed and things would have um, been edited. Um, And I do think, I mean, after being in his paper so much and talking to so many of his family and friends, I have no doubt that the next show he wrote after rent would have been super political. Um, Like, you know, I'm listening to his songs that are standalones or are for other musicals and they're, you know, talking about the Berlin wall and they're 
they're talking about um, there's a song he wrote called White Male World and it's literally if someone brought it to 54 Below Tomorrow I'd be like this is incredible and so relevant and he wrote it so long ago yeah. and it's kind of this like amazing list song about like he was such an advocate and an ally for other populations especially women especially people of color especially people of different like gender expressions and like sexualities and if you look at his work even like in college let alone rent like he was embracing this idea of like everyone having a place on stage in a way that like no one did at that time. He was so incredible and ahead of his time in that way. Um, and that intersects with the political stuff that he wrote. And he, um, there's so much angry stuff about like uh, Reagan, which I was like, yeah. And, um, <laughs> it's so relevant yeah. though, you know? And I just know that like, not that Rent isn't political in itself in many ways, but I think the next show he wrote would have certainly been directly like about politics. Yeah. Did, last again last question did they not change anything about rent after the night that he died is it was it locked that night um in a way i mean it's not i'm sure you know performances changed and direction changed and you know they moved theaters obviously yeah um but in a way like the the text and certain things about the show like didn't change and there's a notebook at the library that is labeled like the notebook the last notebook Jonathan had before he died and it's filled with notes of things he wanted to do and and maybe let's look at this scene and and you know Michael Greif talks about that that they were like oh this part in act two we're gonna maybe look at the third day of rehearsal after this preview like that is part of it and they were like now we can't change it this is what it is um which I love and I think that was totally the right choice and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with it with the show either yeah yeah. I just think um you know, that that was a unique circumstance. Okay, shifting gears entirely, you're a big fancy producer now. How <laughs> did that happen? Nice. Um, you know, I have always, like, producing intersects with what I do in such a weird way. Like, so much of what I do as the creative and programming director at 54 is producing. Um, but now, you know, I have been working with the owners of 54 Below, who are Broadway producers in their incredible history of producing Hairspray and producers in Angel in America um, and the Parisian Woman this season, which we did. And so I'm involved with, um, you know, their producing projects now, um, as well as some upcoming producing projects of myself, my own that have not been announced yet, but will be soon that I can't talk about. But Broadway? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. I can't say anything oh else. <laughs> now, when, so what is your role? Like, I remember seeing your pictures as like associate producer, Jennifer Ashton mm-hmm. Like, what, what do you do? I've had the great fortune of being able to actually talk to a lot of producers for Broadway Backstory and, and really understanding their role and the creative process. And 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 I didn't realize that producers really had a hand in the actual storytelling. Do you have a part in it in that way? Totally. I mean, I will say that what's so weird to me about theater is that you can have any number of different titles, but and Sam Pinkleton said this in a really beautiful way when I was interviewing him, and I, I should find his wording because I loved it, of... um. At some points, it's just like all hands on deck. And it doesn't matter if you're the assistant costume designer or the like understudy to one of the actors. Like you are, it's like, how do we fix this part of this scene? And it's kind of, you know, not that people are necessarily stepping on each other's toes, but there's a certain all hands on deck mentality of theater where there are certain tasks that I've done when I've been an assistant director on a show that I've also done as an associate producer just because it's part of my skill set. And people go, oh, like that's an interesting thing that you can do. So, there's that part of it. Then there's the fact that, you know, I got to be part of the producing process in a really cool and active way. Um, you know, everything from casting and being part of like the producer side of, of casting the show to, um, you know, meetings about like ad meetings to, um, handling the day to day of 
like the theater and you know how we're operating things um and and just be really part of like the producers team as far as making decisions um certainly like you know creative decisions during previews like I got to be part of all of those conversations wow. which was really and um and developing the show and you know we did a couple readings you went from taking notes as a student to how things were changing <laughs> the previews to actually t- taking notes about changes you were going to make during previews totally and I mean I think the great part of it though is like there's also this thing about theater that's like a show you care about is a show you care about whether it's something you're working on on Broadway or uh-huh. like with your friends in our basement so um you know I felt part of it in that way for a while and almost doing it on Broadway didn't it didn't actually feel that different than like doing it in our basement you know like yeah. a create like a show is a show and like Lonnie Price also um there's a beautiful I'm I don't know I'm referencing my book but um Lonnie Price said that when he was working for Hal Prince he was directing a show in a basement um on 22nd Street and Hal Prince was directing a show on Broadway um and Hal would ask how his show was going how Lonnie's show was going and Lonnie would be like I can't believe you're asking this like I'm directing it underneath like a supermarket and um Hal was like no we're, we're both just doing shows and like I think that that's really true uh-huh. yeah um, poor Uma Thurman. Like, is there just no end of smash jokes? At least for like the first couple days of rehearsal. Do you know? In all my interactions with Uma, we literally never talked about smash. That and, like, is, I I cannot imagine that. We have all failed as a as a I don't I don't know why it just really never came up. She was wonderful in every way, and um, but even like one day she was like eating something from Green Symphony. We were talking about food from Green Symphony, and I was like, oh, this is a perfect end to talk about the smoothies, and I just didn't do it. I don't know. I love that it at least crossed your mind. That makes me feel much better. Yeah. Yeah. Two more questions. Maybe you can't talk about this, but like, are there must be a talk of a life for your Larson project beyond Fifty Four Below? Um, definitely something like totally open to it. Um, honestly, like I, it, it seems crazy, but I've worked so hard on it to like every single element of it is going to be so thoroughly researched and so thoroughly cared about that um, I'm still so focused on like this iteration of it. I would love it if someday it was like a full show or if it was a book or if it was a podcast or if it was a movie. Like there's no, um, there's no like it can't happen. But for me, I'm just so focused right now on like it's going to be so perfect. And people are like, how are you still researching this? And I'm like, I don't know if that um, box that I pick up of a show that Jonathan started writing and stopped writing in 1983 is going to inform some lyric that's in a song that's in the project so it's like and I love researching it and I love learning more about him and so you know it's kind of just an ongoing process and like the actors who are in it who are Nick Blameyer George Salazar Lauren Marcus Destiny Ray and Andy Miantis um, have all not heard any of the songs yet and like next week we're all meeting and we're all gonna like listen to the songs together wow. which I'm like so excited about and Charlie Rosen is creating orchestrations and we have listened to some of the songs together and um, just to kind of you know all those people I just named are such fans of Jonathan and have been since they were kids like I was and to be able to kind of experience that like let's listen to a song of his that you've never heard before that you're going to introduce to our audiences in October together it's just like it gives me chills just like talking about it um, <laughs> is Jonathan so singing them is it like Lin-Manuel Miranda style like plunking it out on a piano and he's singing some of it you know what's really amazing is um, I've learned a lot about people that you and I both know but who were also a big part of his world like him and Marin Maisie were really good friends and um, she's on a lot of his demos she was in some of his wow. workshops and like him and Roger Bart were also they were best friends he was like the original Roger like he in the was. original readings right yes. like I remember reading the that the character's in my mind named Roger because of Roger Bart. No yes. way. Yes. Why didn't he do it? Um, just like life and things happened. Yep. Um, and there's like, I mean, Roger told me the most like incredible stories about Jonathan that I hope like he'll write a book or an article or do a show and get to share someday. But, um, it, it, 
it's amazing how many people like that show up and, and I'll be listening to a demo on a tape that's labeled like 1984 demo one. And I'll be like, Oh cool. Like what is this? Listen, listen. I'm like, this is Roger Bart. Um, so a lot of that, wow. um, most of it, a lot of it is Jonathan. Um, and there's a couple songs that I have gotten so obsessed with that, um, are just Jonathan playing them at the piano and the recording. And so I've been talking so much to Charlie Rosen about like with a full band and with a cat, a full cast and with, Oh, this number that's Jonathan at the piano on this tape. How do we keep the spirit, keep the intention of Jonathan's but turn it into a group number with you know six piece band so um, a lot of those conversations of like how would he have wanted this to sound and you know all of that that's amazing. I'm so excited. Um, last question. <laughs> Do you agree that Lindsay Mendes has been egregiously overlooked for Tony Awards and this could very well be her year? Oh my God. I so agree. <laughs> Truly like Carousel ended and I pulled out my phone and immediately was like Lindsay's going to win the Tony. Lindsay's going to win the Tony. Um, I cannot say how much I think that she – I mean I, – I, I haven't seen all of the shows yet. I'm not even thinking in my brain of who else is nominated. Like I right. just, I want that Tony. It's for the her. thing that I always say to Laura Benanti because I'm obsessed with uh, women on the verge of a nervous yeah. breakdown. Like everybody who's nominated for a Tony Award deserves to win <laughs> the Tony Award, but Laura Benanti should have two Tony Awards. Yeah, I'm not saying anybody that year didn't deserve to win. Totally, I'm just saying that Laura Benanti should, they should have given it to two people. Totally, and like Lindsay's performance in Carousel is so thrilling and yeah. is so um, true to the fabric of the show, true to the production, but also like her own creation in such a cool way. Yeah. Like I, she made me think about like every line she said in a different, I just was like, I was amazed. And as someone who has known her and been amazed by her performances for years, I was like, I just feel like the whole world is going to know now. There's something about her. Like I've only ever met her a handful of times, but like when you meet her in real life, like she's just like a cool woman. (laughs) But then when you see her on stage, like she is so transforming. Yeah. I don't even know if that's the right word, but she just is like her ability as an actress is just so over. It's just so outrageous. And I really thought that last year and now, of course, I'm forgetting the name of the play that she did with Gideon Glick. Significant Other. Significant yeah. other. I was like, this is going to be her year oh to get her my nomination. God. I was like weeping. I know, same. Also, but like Lindsay and Dogfight. Lindsay and um, Wicked was one of I the know, best things I've I ever know. seen. Like, I, I truly, like, I won the lottery for Wicked and it was my mom's birthday and we sat in the front row and we both just wept at Lindsay. And like, we've seen Wicked how many times right, and heard it how many course. times. She's, of course. She's transcendent. She's like, so vulnerable. Yeah. And the people also, I think because people are used to hearing her belt and hearing her do the amazing types yeah. of singing, they're no, like, she's more known for doing people don't know that she can do the thing that's in carousel the classic musical theater thing perfectly like incredibly and like when you listen to the music when you listen to dogfight like that music is so god we, we'll stop talking about her in one second i promise helena york to Lindsay mendez I, I know i know totally, exactly <laughs> but it's like listen that when she told the story on the podcast about like work you know how hard would it be to be cast in a show where the lead woman is meant to be unattractive that's the whole mm-hmm. thing and of course they put a lot of makeup and a bad wig on her to make her ugly but like the process of her and Joe Mantello like working on that of the emotional arc of that so that she could get through it every night it's just I just love that totally so much. me too anyway I'm obsessed with you I'm obsessed with you thank you for doing this I want to talk more as we get closer to the project yeah, I would love after that. I see it I want to talk again yeah I would love that I'm so excited thank you okay bye thank you for having me bye 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 <laughs> Theater People is produced by Mike Jensen and me Patrick Hines for more information about Be More Chill, check out bemorechillmusical.com and find tickets and information about the Jonathan Larson Project at 54below.com. Special thanks to our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Rizell, Ty Williams, Cynthia Wallach, and Carol Spellman. Thanks also to Steve Tipton, Ellen Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back next week. Until then, go see some theater, you guys. For attention, hating convention, hating potential. Not to mention, of course, hating dear old mom and dad.